For just the second time in New Zealand football history, the All Whites have made it to the World Cup. Why has it taken almost 30 years for the national side to make an encore at arguably the world's biggest sporting event? And what does the future hold for the beautiful game in New Zealand? In this Radio New Zealand Insight programme, sports reporter Stephen Hewson investigates. And it comes into the always box. Up go Bahrain. Baston with it. That saves it nicely. It's all over. The Whites win 1 0. Whites are off to South Africa. Just over six months ago, here at Wellington's Westpac Stadium, the New Zealand football team won a place at football's World Cup finals for just the second time in the tournament's 80 year history. It's 28 years since the All Whites first competed at the World Cup in Spain in 1982, and almost half the current squad wasn't even born when that milestone was achieved. Why has it taken so long for a second appearance? How does football plan to capitalise on this latest achievement? And what will constitute success for the All Whites in South Africa? And there is the final whistle. New Zealand are in Spain. Well, the All Whites' achievement of making the World Cup in Spain has become a celebrated part of New Zealand sporting history. It also marks the failure of a sport to capitalise on its opportunities. In 1981, the Springbok Rugby Tour of New Zealand created an anti-rugby sentiment that saw huge numbers of youngsters switch from rugby to football. The All-White's success a year after created an unprecedented profile for the sport, but football administrators failed to take advantage. The current All-White's coach, Ricky Herbert, was a member of that 1982 side, and the pain of the sport's failure to capitalise on events was still evident nearly three decades later, when after beating Bahrain to qualify for this year's World Cup, he made this impassioned plea. They better spend the bloody money right, because we're not going down that pathway again, surely. We've waited 27 years to resurrect something that's incredibly important to all of us, incredibly important to players, to the public, to the kids. These boys are going to go to a World Cup, and it'll be a dream, and it'll be something they'll, they'll never forget. They'll be iconic. The public will embrace them, and when they finish, they'll be remembered as the side to, to achieve it again. But there's kids out there too that need to be supported, so we become a regular country at these events. So what did go wrong? We basically did nothing. You know, that was a real shame. I was still young, still a very ambitious international football player, and, you know, whilst there were still games, there was nothing really meaningful. The year sort of drifted on, and, and there wasn't any real impact or desire, I don't think, to get back to another World Cup. Uh, domestically, competitions just rolled out the same. I think international chances for young players were no greater. And that's kind of what I'm alluding to here is, why wait? You know, I think the public have been an incredibly strong part of what we've done. You know, you can't afford the, the, the national team to come back and do nothing. I mean, hopefully there's something this year and we keep that momentum going and nothing would be better than to roll out post-World Cup a really good programme for 2014 World Cup Challenge in Brazil. And I think the game has a right to see that. I think the public have a right to see that. And I think the players who are in the frame now and are going to a World Cup and could back up again and, and potential players that have unfortunately missed out this time it would show them great vision and um, you know something to achieve as well. The chairman of New Zealand football is Frank Van Hattam, who was a teammate of Ricky Herbert at the 1982 World Cup. The former goalkeeper accepts the sport failed to take advantage of the achievements of 82, but says much of the criticism levelled at the administrators of that era is misdirected. Everyone says, oh, we failed to capitalise after 82. Well, 
I mean, you've got to remember that life was different back then. It wasn't professional. There wasn't many opportunities for players to play professionally overseas. There wasn't the communication that is now. And football wasn't as big as it is now. Yeah, the New Zealand team went into a little bit of a rut after that. A number of them retired. And then we would start back playing in the same sort of competitions. And it just sort of meandered on. You can't argue with the fact that football's continued to grow in numbers. I mean, you know, with this massive numbers of people who are playing the game. And you might also say, over the last 15 years, look how many people have gone on to do wonderful things in football. You've got Ryan Nelson, you've got um, four or five people in the English First Division. We'll look at some of the lessons from 82, and we already have, is about how do you get continuity, how do you develop more players. All those programmes are being put in place as we speak, and uh, you know, I'm quite confident that we'll have a much better organisation, a much better offer for the kids coming through, and for anyone that's showing a bit of talent, a more pronounced path, with a view to actually getting more and more uh, chances at World Cups. The Chief Executive of New Zealand Football, Michael Glading, says strategies that previous administrators devised failed as they were implemented over too short a time frame and were compounded by funding issues. People generally reject change, so I think you have to get a, you have to spend a lot of time getting buy-in to change, and we have been on that path. And I think sometimes you have to make those changes at a slower rate. But secondly, and probably the most telling failure in the past is that funds have come and gone. And like all good plans, they cost money to implement. You need to resource them, both with people and equipment and things like that. And so I think in our game has gone from boom to bust a couple of times. So I think that one of the many benefits of World Cup qualification is that we have some reserves and we can have a little bit more surety. Because what, you've got 8 million US to get from qualifying for... South they, we get eight million. The players get just under half of that. But the the net effect is that we're going to end up at the end of this year uh, with surpluses uh, of around about six million dollars, uh, New Zealand, and some of that money will be put aside for high performance funding, and some of it will be literally locked away in a cupboard and used over a long period of time. New Zealand football is about to embark on a ten-year plan called the Whole of Football Program, which Michael Glading views as a watershed in the game's history here. We're preparing something we call our whole of football plan, which is really a uh, a ten year plan, and it's about growing the game through growing the quality of the game. So I think that there are a bunch of factors in the game that can only be improved over a 10-year period rather than a wave of magic wand, we've qualified for the World Cup, we're now going to improve the quality of the game. That's going to take a lot longer. John Herdman, who's our head of game development, uh, he's been around the world. Luckily, he's also the coach of the football ferns. So whenever he's done a tour, he's tacked on a week and, and spent time with the development people in countries like Switzerland and Holland and Germany and Japan, Australia. Learned some of their best practice, bought it home, worked with the a group of technical people from right throughout the country, looked at what works in other countries, how could that work here, how could we develop it here, and come up with a plan that we're pretty excited about and quietly confident about, but it's a big plan and it, and it will involve changes to the game in terms of the way the game is delivered, right from you know five-year-olds up, if you like. It's not just about generating a, a whole bunch of amazingly talented all-whites, but we believe that that could well be one of the outcomes that comes out of it. You know, kids that are having more time with the ball at their feet, uh, the old globally accepted now 10,000 hour theory where kids have to have the ball at their feet, there. not in a structured way necessarily, but in various ways. It doesn't just cover coaching, it, it covers clubs, it covers volunteers, it covers referees uh, and players. So it, it's improving all aspects of the game, and because that's a pretty aggressive and lofty goal, I think we've got to do it in bite-sized chunks. What's the first bite then? The first bite is, is really starting with juniors and having a consistent delivery 
So in other words, at a certain age, they'll play 4v4, and the next age, they'll play 6v6. So whether you're in uh, in uh, Invercargill or in Kaitaia, as a 6-year-old or 7-year-old or 8-year-old, you're getting the same sort of quality existence. But Chairman Frank Van Hattam says they need to remain realistic that New Zealand's never going to dominate the footballing world. We'll never be at the level of a Brazil or a Spain or an England or you know Germany. You know, that's their lifeblood. And that, the All Blacks you know, is, is what we need to aspire to. Um, and we've, only, we've got to remember, we've only got four and a half million people. Um, what, we, what we can do, everything we can do, we can do professionally as well as them. Um, whether we'll ever have the culture of support you know, you know, to replicate a November the 14th week in, week out. The answer's probably no, but it's no excuse for not doing the right things at the right times. And I think there's, um, there's an understanding and, and a, an acceptance that the game has started to do things better, more consistently. We're going to the next World Cup cycle, and we're already thinking about that now. You know, what does the playoffs look like? We don't know yet, but we, so once we know, how would we give a proper build-up that over the three-year period, so that on the night that it all comes together in a one-off moment in the last minute of extra time, that we're there and able to score that goal. So it is about doing things professionally and saying, yeah, we probably won't have the resources, we probably won't have the, you know, the, the background or the, the understanding of some of the things that make overseas success, but in New Zealanders, if we gave it our best shot, the underdog status will come through, our will to win, um, and why not? So... There's a belief going forward where there hasn't probably been a belief of, you know, the last 20 years. The current qualifying path will also be in place for the 2014 World Cup in Brazil. And Frank Van Hattam says there's no reason the All-Whites won't be in South America. Previously, the top Oceania nation played the fifth-placed South American nation for a place at the tournament. But the Oceania winner now plays the fifth-placed Asian qualifier. It's not insurmountable anymore. The fact they changed the playoff against the South American team into the Asian one um, is, is, is much better for us in one way because you know, the South American, that's a huge ask. It's like the, some you know, like little uh, Tonga taking on the All Blacks or someone like that. With the playing in the, uh, in the Asian Confederation, I think we're in the, we're in the top ten in Asia. You know, so if we can get into playing in the Asian teams home and away, we've proved that at that level we can compete. That's why I'm fairly confident that it'll be disappointing if we can't make the next one as well, given the current way you qualify. While dominating the footballing world is unrealistic, Michael Glading, who's in his 50s, does hope to see the All-Whites break into the top 30 in his lifetime. We compete with many of the poorer countries in the world where the kids have got nothing to do in, in life, uh, sadly, other than kick a, a tennis ball around in the street. That in itself generates skills, uh, which our kids don't have that culture. So I'm not convinced that we will, in our lifetimes, be able to inflict that sort of cultural change. Frankly, a lot of it comes out of poverty and socioeconomic, uh, which we don't wish upon ourselves. But I do think that to be competitive, we have to look at some of that stuff and say, how do we get our kids doing more? more of that on a voluntary, on a fun basis. I think it would be a mistake, uh, getting back to that whole of football, to say the whole thing's geared about generating elite players. I think that will be one of the outcomes, but I think if you go in, in other words, let's take the communist model of finding, you know, talented eight-year-olds and lock them into an academy in Christchurch and, and let them out when they're 18 and we'll have a fabulous team, you know. That's not what we're about either. So I think we've got to, we, I think we've got to be realistic in what we want to get out of it. But I do think that if we do it right, we can uh, gradually grow that skill factor, whether we'll ever get to the point where kids can do what they can do in South America.
but then we do other things you know we've got uh, Kiwis have got big hearts and you just look at this team and I think that as a collection of players if you line up our 11 versus any 11 opponents person for person uh, with probably the only exception of Ryan if we're honest about it the skill levels of their opposite number will be much much higher but as a team we have an incredible psyche an incredibly big heart and, and all those things that have driven New Zealand teams on Twenty-eight years ago, the bulk of the New Zealand football side wasn't born in New Zealand. Even the team song was led by an expatriate Englishman, Ray Wolf. Cause it's a great time to live, and it's time to stand up and be counted. In 2010, though, the team song, cover version of the feelers Stand Up, was performed by New Zealander Stan Walker, and all the members of the squad were born in this country. New Zealand football's Michael Glading says that's indicative of the change that the sport has undergone and the warnings he got when he took on the CEO's role two years ago. Everyone said, oh, you know, you'll have to put up with, with, with the butchers from Woodersfield, as they call them. Uh, <laughs> it was not like in my day, you know, but, but we haven't, uh, I haven't really struck that, to be fair. I think for whatever reason, maybe it's just the success of the All Whites has driven that, but um, there has been, uh, I've found within the game, we've got seven federations and I've spent a lot of time around them. There is a real desire to actually make a change, and whether that's just because it's a moment in time or whether that's just a... Sh- maturing of people and uh, maybe it's just that the game is not just covered by immigrants I'm not anti-immigrants of course they founded the game but I think that you're now getting second generation Kiwis coming into it and so I think a lot of that or not like in my day, is disappearing. Uh, and, and that's healthy because uh, it was an unhealthy environment where people are bickering and moaning. And you'll always get it. And I, I think you've also got to understand that, that football uh, is probably a more passionate game than most others. I mean, you know, I get as passionate as anybody else when I'm watching Arsenal play or, you know, I'm swearing at the television or going up and down. And, and you know, I watch golf and cricket and tennis on television. And yeah, I get excited about that, but nothing like as passionate as to do about football so football is full of passionate people uh, sometimes they'd be better off not not sharing their passion in public <laughs> the all whites qualification for the World Cup and the success of the Wellington Phoenix in the Australian A-League has delighted fans who believe the sport's finally getting its house in order People know who wouldn't normally come to watch a football match are coming and enjoying it and seeing how much fun it can be. It's a very simple game and uh, the, the stoic mentality of New Zealanders has slowly but surely been eroded. It's always been the pommy game, and but now I think it's changing. We're getting more and more local kids into it. It's got a great profile already and all a lot of school kids play it a lot more than um, rugby, especially girls. The young kids are all keen as mustard. You know, all you got to do is have the path there for them to follow. New Zealand and rugby go together, don't they? But... New Zealand and soccer, I'll say soccer, old school, never have until now. But, I mean, you just look at this crowd and look at the parents and the kids and... And yeah, it's, it's, a, yeah, it's a fun crowd, yeah. eh? I mean, everybody's enjoying themselves. So that's what Soccer New Zealand's got a bloody focus on. Get people behind it, support it, so we can go further from a World Cup and get a word out there. Keep this energy going and keep everyone interested in it. After the um, World Cup, they need to keep focused on football and they need to keep the keep New Zealand public focused on football as well. 
While the success of the All Whites and the Phoenix has created a feel-good factor among the wider football community, at club and regional level it's a struggle financially. For the past four years, clubs around the country have received a share of the half million dollars earned when either Auckland City or Watakari won the Oceania spot in the World Club Championships. That tournament's contested between the champion clubs from all six continental confederations and involves the likes of Manchester United, Milan and Barcelona. The chairman of the Takapuna Football Club on Auckland's North Shore, Mike Hill, says the failure of a New Zealand side to qualify this year means that money will be sorely missed. If you look at the National League, that league seems to be supported by uh, pokey money and also um, the revenue generated by the uh, World Club Cup. So um, that dollar value has got to be replaced by something else. So if, the, if New Zealand football is willing to invest and, um, into that level, then I think that's a good thing. I mean, clubs are all, uh, always looking for money. Uh, sponsorship's not there anymore. And um, when we approach local businesses, etc., we always get turned down. There doesn't seem to be a um, parochial uh, enthusiasm that there used to be. But uh, we still have our costs to pay, and um, those costs to play or pay for uh, in the senior game uh, seem to be becoming more expensive. We seem to be paying for um, more administration costs than we used to, and um, we do often wonder where the money goes. Excellent. Hey, we'll see you guys all again next week. Enjoy that chocolate fish. Sunday morning at Nienville Park in Wellington and budding all whites, the Onslow Polar Bears nursery grade side is in action. Coach Russell Turner and his charges are an example of the growing numbers involved in the game. Numbers wise, football's the country's biggest sport, according to Sport and Recreation New Zealand's Chief Executive Peter Miskimmon. But therein lies a problem. But we don't know accurately, nor do football, what those numbers look like. We know there's over 200,000 people, um, but not all of those are registered. So part of our work with football and football's plan is to actually understand who their, who their players are and so they can have a, an accurate record of at all levels. So is the, is the bottom, uh, is, the, is the grassroots or, or junior football growing or is it shrinking? Where is it at? So I think that, that's part of the, the, uh, the trick first is to be able to understand the sport and who's playing and why and what numbers look like. And uh, football not alone, many of our sports, probably outside cricket and rugby, don't really understand the numbers of people playing the game in, in, in accurate sense. Nick, you're the last one. Good shot, Chris Peter Royal has been coaching football at junior club and representative level for the past 10 years and runs coaching courses for Capital Football, a regional body that administers the game in the lower half of the North Island. He says one area New Zealand football is neglecting is teenagers. When you talk to parents and to, and to players, I mean, one of the really good things that New Zealand football had at one stage was they ran a national age grade tournament. And unfortunately now, with the cost of running the national age grades tournaments, not so many opportunities available to be showcased. And I think that's you know, one area in particular where you know, the game needs more development, needs more opportunities for players at a regional level to, to, to play against other regions, help develop their football, but again, to showcase their, uh, their capabilities. But... Now that doesn't exist, um, one wonders how they will get showcased. While Peter Royal has concerns about what's happening with the young men's game, he says the women's game's come along in leaps and bounds at international level. We've had wonderful opportunities uh, in the female game with the progress that the under-20 women's team have made and the under-17s have made. The under-17s, of course, have also qualified 
for World Cup in Trinidad and Tobago, and uh, they're off there next year. But here in uh, Wellington in particular, I mean, it's been quite a sacrifice for some of the girls that have made those sides, and that uh, because of the you know, the competitions that are run locally and the, the opportunities to play at a high level aren't well supported in this region. Some of those players are now having to move to Auckland to further their career and make sure they get the best of the, uh, the competitions to prepare them for their World Cup venture, which is, uh, I guess, a little bit disappointing. And I would rather hope again out of the, the World Cup structure that we get enough interest in the game that competitions at a local level are, are much stronger because there's more people playing um, and there's more interest in the games. The All-Whites and Phoenix coach Ricky Herbert endorses Peter Royal's view when it comes to young, talented amateur players developing a professional career. He says the step from promising amateur to professional is still too big. The first thing I did when I came over Phoenix was sign New Zealand players because I, you know, I thought that was a real negative in what we'd done previously. And those players are blossoming to be you know, national heroes now and World Cup players because it's important to have a very strong structure here to, to grow. Um, ambition's one thing but reality's another as a four year old kid playing football I had the same ambitions as kids have today and uh, you know, England had always been that sort of prominent place that people look towards but um, you know, a lot of kids are going there now getting heartbroken, coming back and falling out of love with the game and you know, these are players that have a lot of potential and, and, and are possibly the future for, you know, for the game I mean ideally if we had a professional youth league team like all the other A-league clubs have then um, you know, we'd have the best dozen, 15 of them in Wellington training every day and you know how cool will that be and, and I think that's that's sort of the void at the moment that, that these young boys are looking for is you know the phoenix is there and they love it and it's profiled and it's and it's an opportunity but but the steps may be just a little bit too far and just to have that middle step what's achievable and they can progress to you know whether it's the phoenix or the Sydney FC or whatever or even further abroad then um, you know I think we would be a better producer of young talent than, than what we're doing at the moment. Transformed, and Nelson's unstoppable header put them in front on 73 minutes. It was only the Kiwi's second ever Blackburn goal, a confidence booster as he prepares for his country's World Cup playoff against... Bar- the All-Whites captain, Ryan Nelson's the face of New Zealand football. For the past five years, he's been playing in the English Premier League for Blackburn Rovers, and prior to that, played in the United States Major League soccer competition. He says he's noticed a dramatic change in the profile of the sport, from when he left Christchurch ten years ago. I mean, at Blackburn, it's pretty full on. You know, they um, obviously, they, you know, they, it's the only really thing that they have in, in the town. Um, they're out, so it's um, you can't really do much in Blackburn. But um, and in New Zealand, it's changed as well. Actually, now, like um, I used to be able to come back here, and it was it was pretty easy. Nobody really really recognised you. And now, pretty much, you know, most people do actually. But the difference is, I see is, um, you know, at the, at the youth level, I think um, it's it's getting um, more and more popular. More and more people are, are exposed to um, to football on TV now. Um, everybody knows about everybody knows about the players in Europe. Um, it's just, um, I suppose, it's just the whole the whole media coverage has has just been is, is so much more than, than when I left ten years ago. And um, and um, I mean, it's, it's it's great to, for um, it's great for the game and it's great for um, I think for for young boys and girls when they when they look and they, they actually can see these to have a career playing professional football is, is actually very viable now. It's actually you know it's not so not so far off as it used to be. And I think um, what, what's going to be really exciting about this World Cup is we've got some fantastic young players coming through and some real talented players that could really set the um, the world alight. And um, hopefully my um, my ugly mug will be uh, will be off and uh, some um, pretty boy youngster can. Uh, take over. All but a couple of the 23-strong all-white squad aren't full-time professional players. 
and Nelson expects several of the New Zealand's players will advance their careers in South Africa and come away from the World Cup with European club contracts. Blackburn are sending five or six scouts, and that's just that's just one club. So every single club, every single big club, will be sending scouts, and they'll be watching. So if you're if you're a young player, it's got to be so exciting to be able to showcase your skills in front of the um, in front of the, in front of virtually every eye of, of every major club. What what is going to constitute success for for the All Whites at this World Cup? Exactly, it's a hard one to, to, to point out that one, but um, I think um, the way I, or the way I look at it is what we'll do is in, in the three games, in the three pool games, is, is that uh, this team will absolutely give everything. We'll, we'll die trying to get a result, and um, the brutal reality is, is that we might lose all three games. But if New Zealand could be proud of, of what we did and our efforts and all that, then um, that would be fantastic. But in saying that, you know, if, if we can get a win or we can get a point, you know, if we can get if we can do something. So teams in the future will be compared to 2010 and 82. New Zealand go into the elite 32-nation tournament with a lowly world ranking of 78. The only nation below them is South Africa at 90, who gained automatic qualification as hosts. The all-wide's ranking and relatively easy qualifying path means they're viewed as the tournament easy beats, which rankles with vice-captain Tim Brown. Around the world, uh, there's probably a lot of people that don't think we deserve to be there. We've got to go there and, and perform to a level that, that shows people that they're wrong in that view and, and I think it's a, it's a big challenge for us and, and uh, I think uh, hopefully along the way in doing that we can, uh, we can surprise a few people and maybe even qualify for the next round. The All-Whites opening game against Slovakia, who are ranked 38th in the world, shapes up as their best chance of a win as Game 2's against the reigning world champs Italy and then 30th ranked Paraguay. Having spent the past five years getting the All-Whites back on their feet, coach Ricky Herbert's concerned that the game could lose momentum after South Africa. We had a, a three-tier approach. One was to get the, the All-Whites back playing because for, for whatever reason they were putting mothballs in. Um, get some credibility back in the shirt because we'd had a disappointing World Cup campaign. Um, qualify for a Confeds Cup, get back to world football, get the brand and name out there again, but ultimately qualify to a, you know for a World Cup. So... That's always been absolute, the only outcome, nothing less. So we've got that. And uh, you know, I think what you have within the players and the management now is just a massive desire to continue the success. And November the 14th has done something for football. Something changed that night, and uh, it doesn't matter where you go now. It's, it's incredibly you know, well talked about, supported. Another good thing, it's being debated too. So you know, football's right up there in coffee shops and restaurants and people are talking about it and why did he pick him and why didn't he pick him and, and, and that's a great place for us to be. It's better than for the last 28 years when nobody's really spoken about it at all. The All-Whites have provided football with the impetus it needs but if it's to kick on, it's now up to the wider football community and the game's administrators to make the most of that night last November when they qualified for the World Cup. And it comes into the always box. Up go Bahrain. Paston with it. It saves it nicely. It's all over. The always win. 1 0. The always are off to South Africa. On come the sub. That Radio New Zealand Insight was written and presented by Stephen Hewson. Technical production was by Steve Burridge and it was produced by Sue Ingram.